Welcome to an all-coronavirus episode <laughs> of La Ventanita. I am your recently boosted and feverish host, uh, Carlos Frias, the Miami Herald food editor, joined by my still-testing-positive co-host, Amy Reyes. I am super, Reyes. Spread, super spreader and patient zero <laughs> of the Kendall variant, Amy Reyes. I think we have. Uh, I think anyone watching this live right now is uh, is uh, gonna get. You should all get tested. Y'all should get tested because <laughs> all y'all got three the, of you should go get tested. Y'all got the Zoom Rona now. Yeah, for sure. This Kendall variant is very powerful. It is. Uh, it's transmittable via via internet. The uh, the, the electro waves. Yeah, you've you been te- totally get this. You've been testing positive for over a week now. You had yeah, this the dude. last time we did the podcast. Yeah, we, dude. Uh, but we didn't know, right? We didn't know no, that it was no, the one of them. Well, no, no, you're right. You're right. I I didn't get the results until later in the day, but I just I felt terrible. So like I knew I knew I had the vids, but now it's like I have uh I've been at it for a week and I feel like me and and I'm just like settling into my new life is just gross all the time. Like this is this is this is you now, as they say. This is me now. Right, and I just, got the I got the booster um yesterday yesterday the day before and all yesterday I was. I was beat up, like I had a fever, and I was just kind of, kind of laid up. And today I'm still like I'm getting over the fever. I'm still a, a little achy and such, but whatever. Knock on wood. I yeah, don't want man. that. Yeah, Everybody, everybody who I know who has had COVID in like recent months is like, girl, just strap in because even once you're once you're not testing positive anymore, you are still going to feel like. Like you can't breathe or like you're having shortness, you know, like like the the breathing is is going to be a problem and the energy. Like I have like this fatigue where I could just take a nap like right now, but I'm cool. You'll, I'm you'll take a nap in, in, in 50 minutes when we're done. Exactly. And then for the rest of the day. No, but seriously, it's I'm uh, I'm glad you felt, you know, well enough to do it. Um, yeah, but you know something? A, I had to come today because today we are celebrating and I have come up with the best way to celebrate the fact that. My friend Carlos Frias was nominated for a James Beard Award for local voice in journalism. Heller. And guess what I have to celebrate? I have what? a mini little pot and pan. Um, I think this is what the Heats do when they win the sports ball games. So I that just figured it would be a very Miami way to celebrate for you. And I, am, I only have this small, my, my small little frying pan. You'll get the full frying pan if you win. This All is right. just the one for eggs. We get the full pot and pan effect. No, yeah, thank yeah. you. It's super uh, exciting, super unexpected. Yeah, I'm very proud of you, Carlos. So the the nature of this prize, it was a, um, a whole portfolio that had to be submitted that included three stories that you uh, wrote during the, Rovi- the, the COVID period. <laughs> it was like, because they took some time off from the James Beard Awards. To kind yeah. of regroup, and they had, to, they had to check their privilege and and potential racism, and yeah, uh, they had to kind they, of they picked do an a whole bunch. Yes, they really did a total audit about who um, who was uh, doing the picking of restaurants and who was you know who was uh, awarding different prizes and things like that. They they did a, a full kind of reckoning of what their their whole process was. So well, as a result, there was a longer a longer period from which to choose for submissions too. So, so um, we have a Twitter thread that shows all of the stories that Carlos submit for this prize, and you can read them on our Twitter. And it's all great because Carlos is the man. 
Well, let me tell you, I it was it was really special because I mean, obviously, having won one already, you know, a couple years go by, and then you think it's a little bit of imposter syndrome. Like that was that a was that a fluke? Was that a one time thing? And like uh, you know, did someone throw a bone down here to Miami? And I don't know. No. Um, Stop! Stop! It, don't be dumb. You and, no. You and I were. Stop. You and I were. You and I were real time watching the uh, the. Like you're dumb. You're stupid. And I was Stop. like, <laughs> I was laughing. I was like, oh my god, this is really happening. Um, and I was like, yeah, you scrub. Of course you're you getting dummy. nominated. Of course, <laughs> you big dummy. Dork. Stupid. <laughs> anywho, uh, well, congratulations anywho. to you, Thank and you. just being nominated. Um, just really? being nominated is great. So. It I do really hope is. I get to pull out the bigger pot for you, but uh, I think the egg pot is still good. No, the egg pot is fantastic. I'm I am humbled um, by the by the uh, pot and pan celebration. Um, so, what do we have today um, besides our guest, who is going to be great? Uh, I want to get to him pretty quickly, but what do we got? We have uh, I I looked into our cafecito index, right? The yes. Miami cafecito index. So. Uh, Doug Hanks, uh, our government reporter, posted the other day that like prices had gone up for his coladas at a at a, a little place in Hialeah, and they got us talking about: Is there any place left that you can get a one dollar colada? Like uh, a colada is, you know, a Cuban coffee that's four ounces and it's meant to share. You get the little thimble cups and you can share them. And it and I just started calling around. I literally made a list of like twenty of like the most popular places uh, all over Miami Dade County and just called them up. Uh, and got prices, and there's literally no place that you can get that dollar colada. Where, like, as little as two years ago, it was kind of standard. You could, mm-hmm. you know, throw out a little Havana, you could get it. So, um, I just kind of spent a little time saying, you know, uh, saying goodbye to our to our dollar colada. And let's be honest, even at, at well, in the the average price is like two bucks, but even at yeah. two bucks, it's still pretty much a deal. It's like still a deal. $2. I mean, if you go to Starbucks, you're still paying what like. Four dollars. Like Four dollars for like a the the whatever they call a small. The so, dirty yeah. bean water. Yeah, for ew. Yeah, get out of here with that. So mm-hmm. I, I wrote I wrote about that. That's on the internet somewhere. Um, and <laughs> it's on the, the Miami Cafecito Herald Index. Website. It it's is the the, the, index. the most Miami measurement of inflation. That's right. I called it the uh, because it's you know everything else has gone up. So it's like that's the uh, well the the cafecito in the coal mine. You know, like yeah. uh, that's the first. <laughs> The first indicator that first domino. That, yes, that that things are going up behind the scenes, and that's that's really the that's really the point. Um, oh, the other thing we have to mention: we mm-hmm. are on the elite eight of our new restaurant showdown. So oh if you um, if you want to vote and vote repeatedly, um, that story is up, and we have the poll inside of the story, and you can see who's still left. Um, in the top spot right now, we have uh, Luca Osteria. I think that place is pretty much crushing the competition. It should. But there, there are seven more, and I just can't remember what they are. But they're yeah. on the list, and you can vote, and you can vote repeatedly. So we can determine what is the Internet's favorite new Miami restaurant. Right. I love I love saying it just like that. It's which is the Internet's favorite restaurant, because really <laughs> that's what it comes down to. I, you know, don't Basically. put too much stock in it, everybody. But, but truthfully, Luca is... Yeah. It is really great. I have been there several times since it opened and it's it has it's it's always interesting and and tasty and fantastic and and frankly you know, a good another, deal. Another place that's up there is a place that I haven't been and I haven't even heard of, but I know it exists, so it's not a um it's not a situation like we had in the previous poll. What was it called? Well, well fed? known. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's called well fed. 
God, we're such jerks. But no, like, it, the, there's another place called Certo um, that is apparently in West Miami, and it's legit. It, it exists in the universe, and it's it's actually giving some competition to uh, to Luca Osteria. So if you like Luca, you should vote. All right. I'm, I'm going to check that place out. That Certo is actually, uh, I drive by it every now and then. It's where it went in where there used to be a Dominican place called Aquie. <laughs> Oh, well, that's cool. No, Certo sounds pretty legit. And um, it's another one that's giving Luca fierce competition. So, well, let's let's get right into the guest. Um, Our guest today is uh, Michael Beltran. Uh, He wants to be called Michael for the formality of it, but I'm going to call him Mike. So, Mike. Mike wears his Cubanness on his sleeve. Literally, he has an arm sleeve of that tattoos that includes a mame and a Cuban coffee cafetera. Um, he's the owner of Ariette and Chug's Diner in Coconut Grove, uh, and he grew up nearby in Little Havana. Um, and he studied under the best Miami chefs, uh, James Beard winners like Michael Schwartz and Norman Van, a- Norman Van Aken. Uh, and he's a two-time Beard nominee himself. Uh, Padma Lakshmi, the host of uh, Top Chef, um, she has a new Hulu series called Taste the Nation. When she came into town to do a story about Noche Buena in Miami, she picked him to be on his show because he does something very interesting. He spins forward Cuban cuisine in a way that he tries to imagine what it, what it would be like if the revolution had never happened. And it evolved into like this very fine dining, which is we've gotten used to in America in the last 40, 50 years. Um, but he doesn't just in, uh, do Cuban food. He incorporates Miami flavors into this fine dining. It's it's kind of what I call a, a new Miami cuisine, uh, and that's his thing. It's Miami against the world. That's Mike's. <laughs> that's all Mike. Um, so you can hear him go hard for Miami in his weekly podcast, Pancom Podcast, uh, with Nicholas Jimenez, his co-host, and uh, ask Mike about any topic, and he'll have an opinion. So let's get right into it. Welcome, Mike. Michael. Uh-huh. Carlos, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Good, good, very good. You just you, so you just got back from the gym. Yeah, and he well, I mean, I just I just walk out of the gym straight here. So if I look rough, I apologize. He was fitnessing. <laughs> Let him. Yeah, fitnessing. <laughs> He's got the pinta of fitnessing. Yeah, you still you got that flush. You got that nice flush. But and you don't just you don't lift or whatever. But you you do boxing, right? You're a, you're a I, boxing guy. I do both now. I do oh. both now. I just boxed for uh, two and a half years for to trim down, and then uh, I incorporated weightlifting uh, about uh, probably about a year ago. Yeah. Now this is significant because this isn't just like oh I stay healthy. You lost over a hundred pounds, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I, I lost 100, 165 pounds. One hundred and sixty. You lost. You lost an Olsen twin or two. Yeah, you lost no, two Olsen. That's yeah. two Olsen twins. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mike, that's yeah. incredible. I didn't know that. That's a, that's was a pregnant that Amy. He lost a pregnant Amy. Wow. Yeah. It was necessary. I, I also I also was sober for two and a half years. Uh I didn't drink or eat any sugar for fourteen months. Um oh my God. you know, it was like a serious life change for sure. Mike, you were um you were in high school, you were a, a defensive lineman, right? You were a Yeah. Uh, so I mean like you're you played football, so your whole career, everything, everything rewarded you for being a big, a big guy. guy. Mm. But now yeah, I'm cooking. Uh, I was um, I was a D tackle in high school, 
And then when I went to college, I was uh, a weak side D end. So basically the heavier D end. And, um, and then in nickel package, I would move to three and the zero technique. So I was always, you know, so I've always been a big guy. I was two months premature and I was nine and a half pounds. So I've been big forever. <laughs> Your poor mom. Yeah, I know. She's, that... she's an angel. So yeah, mercifully, he was premature. Yeah. Who did you play for, Michael? Uh, it, locally, I went to Columbus High School, uh, the best high school in Dave County. And then um, uh, I played at a small Division three school called Averett University, where um, my freshman year was the fourth year of the actual program. And then my senior year, we won the conference. Um, they've had a pretty good you know, run in the last like three or four years. But you know, it was a good experience for sure. Mike, well, why I, boxing? I, I, what made you get into boxing? Yeah, in I was because because like that whole idea of deciding number one, deciding that like you need to do something. Like, what happened that you decided that you said that you had to change my life? And how did boxing work into that? Well, I mean, boxing is um, it's really the opportunity that you spend about ninety minutes, and the only thing you could worry about is not getting punched in the face. Mm-hmm. So it forces okay. you to uh, mentally disconnect from like everything in the world and really just work on yourself and boxing be, I mean, it is incredibly physical. Um, there's a lot of mental when it comes to boxing too. And it's like, there's a lot of strategy. There's a lot of, um, you know, uh, personal style. Um, and you know, like boxing is, it takes decades to become a good boxer, you know? Um, and I'm fortunate enough that, you know, my coach is a great coach and I've, boxed and sparred with great guys and uh i've learned with some really really good uh miami legends and just kind of like it's it's a great mental break from the day-to-day restaurant world mike do you want to be a good boxer or you just like i just want to fit in my pants oh no i want to be a good boxer so yeah, you want to I mean, box you the, want to go into the gym and fight people i do yeah i spar uh probably once every two weeks i used to before um you know, there was so many things to worry about. I was sparring once to one or two times a week. Uh, now it's like once every two weeks. And the plan is towards the middle of 2023 to take at least one amateur match. Oh, wow. damn. But remember what happened to Mickey Rourke? He was pretty. And then they busted yeah. his face Don't up. Don't mess up so, that pretty face, yeah. Michael. Yeah. I know. Nobody's okay. going to want to have you on Taste the Nation or anything else with a, with a busted grill. Nobody's going to want I feel. That. I feel pretty confident. <laughs> that that getting your head beat in will make you uh, look better. No, that I'm not gonna get my head beat in. <laughs> All right. I'm well, kidding. can't you wear that thing around your face? Like, isn't that what they do in amateur bouts? Like, yeah, you, yeah. you. That's why um, you know I'm not gonna be a pro boxer. But it's really just um, you know you set goals. I mean, if you don't set a goal for yourself, you're just gonna be working towards nothing. So right. mm-hmm. uh, the goal is to take at least one amateur match. So I could say I at least did it. Um, and amateur matches, you wear headgear and. Um, it's a much safer, uh, kind of like thing than taking a pro match. Pro matches are aggressive, you know, where do you train? Uh, I train at a couple places, uh, Mickey demos, uh, which is where I train the most. And then I have a couple other gyms that, uh, I do like day passes too, just cause Mickey's is kind of far from kind of like the hub of all of our restaurants. So, uh, I'll do you know, I could train on my own. And then also my coach, uh, I have a setup at my house and we train at my house too. Yeah. Amy, Amy can kind of, you can kind of, uh, um, 
empathize with that, sympathize with that, right? The idea that you're working out, but it's nice to have a goal whether yeah, you're going to no, compete I, I in an actual triathlon. triathlon versus just like, I'm going to ride my bike for 15 yeah, miles. Yeah, no, I, and, can't, right. have, I can't just ride in a circle and think that like, uh, you know, I have to be like, okay, well, today I'm going for these numbers and then I'm going to have, uh, you know, a triathlon at the end of the month. Like, I feel like it keeps your training focused and, it, and it's a goal outside yourself. And I kind of I can I can really relate to the idea of a sport where you can't zone out. Like that's how I, I feel about cycling. Like you can't zone out in cycling. You have to be present all the time because there's so much danger. Uh, you know, yeah. and like so the the adrenaline keeps you focused and it keeps you, you know, it keeps you you hungry to like try and, and, and do better. So it's it's like you have to have something to work towards and you also have something that like keeps you keeps you super hyper focused because if not, like you're just, you know, going I mean competition competition is key in any like part right. of life. I mean, competition only breeds greatness, right? Like, I mean, and when you're competing, you're trying to be better and you're trying to be better because you don't want to lose. So, I mean, that's why competing to me has always been, you know, since I was like 14 years old, when I stepped on a football field, like that was pretty much uh, something that was just, it's been part of my life ever since. How, so, what was there a trigger that that made you decide that you needed to lose weight? I mean, 165 pounds is an unbelievable amount. Like I remember at one point, like the most fit I ever was, I all I had to do was lose 30 pounds, and that felt yeah. like like that changed my body. <laughs> that changed my body completely. And I wonder what is it? What did it take to get there? Like, what did it take for you to flip a switch mentally to do that? Mm-hmm. To get there? Um, failure, you know, like uh, Ariet was failing. I think I was failing as a leader. Um, I was failing as like a human in several aspects, drinking too much, drinking drugs, partying, um, not being the best leader I could be. So it was a complete life change. You know, it wasn't just uh, health and fitness. It was like a mental change, um, you know, because uh, I mean, I, you know, you're not getting any younger. Right. And uh, I had kind of like, my dream was like pummeling me into being someone that I really wasn't. So, you know, I had to uh, shit or get off the pot, right? You know, like I had to, um, I had an opportunity and, you know, I, I think I was doing pretty well, but I was letting uh, the situation beat me. So um, I, I don't like to lose. And I think that was like, it was more than just like fitness and stuff, you know, like my family, uh, we have a history of, uh, you know, my dad's side of the family has a history of, uh, you know, struggles with, uh, weight. So I saw, you know, everyone from my father to my grandmother struggle with it. And it was like, um, and then, you know, I, I think just, the the, the industry itself lends itself to excess. Um, sure. and it's fun, you know, I mean, they work too late. Is, yeah. is that a, is that a lot of um is that a big problem in in the restaurant industry drug drug abuse like do people um need to do that like is it like part of the culture or is it just depending on the the venue Oh no it's definitely the culture you know i mean drinking drugs and partying is definitely part of the culture i mean if you ever follow um anthony bourdain i mean that's what he talks about the most right it's like it's a very inviting and um, you know, we could be a group of line cooks that make nine bucks an hour, but we party and we eat and we drink like we're millionaires. And, 
you know, for some people that come from all different walks of life, um, it's very like, um, what's, what's the word? It's just intoxicating, you know, and you, you love that feeling. And, and then on top of that, like you have this group of humans that you become so like intertwined with and you just spend so much time with them and then you party and then you just come right back to work and you do it all over again. And, you know, like there is a small sliver of beauty in that too, because you're creating like this really interesting subculture of a family, but at the same time, um, it becomes very toxic and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not immune to it. There's still uh, large parts of me that very much enjoy having a good time, but I think now, uh, it's very different than it used to be. So that's what your, happened when you, what happened when you decided that you were going to make changes? When, what happened within that subculture? Did, did people come with you for that journey or were they like, what are you doing? We want to party or we want to eat this or we want to drink this. Like, did your, it, was it a supportive, was it a supportive environment when you decided to make a change? It didn't really, I mean, yeah, there was plenty of support, but also like, it didn't matter. Cause I was the boss. You set the tone, right. you know, as the boss, you set the tone and you set the tone of the culture across the board. And, you know, obviously, um, it's very known that I don't always play nice and I, and I don't, and that's totally cool. Um, but there's always a purpose behind it. You know, there's always like, it, there's a lot of tough love and there's a lot of like, uh, I tell people the truth all the time. And I had to tell myself the truth first to be able to hold myself accountable to do that. And yeah, sure. Like some people didn't love it. Um, and that's okay. So, so you make this life change and <laughs> I feel like it was reflected in everything you did. Like it, it shows yeah. up, it showed up in the restaurant. It showed up in the actual dishes. Like the, the way that you cook changed. Can you talk a little bit about like how that met you? Like you said, Ariette was, you said Ariette was failing. You know, it's now been yeah. open six, six years now. Six and a half years. Six and a half years. So the restaurant's failing and now you're nominated for two, two James Beard awards. Like, like that's, yeah. I mean, Something significant happened to change, and then the changes were something that people appreciated. Can you can you just talk about that a little bit? Because I'm so curious to that. Well, I think also like in the mental change, like uh, mentally as a chef, there's a lot of like insecurity and vulnerability uh, when it comes to food, and this is why I have such visceral reactions to so many things because I think we're usually used as like a punching bag for so many other people, and. Um, that's cool. But like the change came in having like clear cut direction into who we were and where I wanted us to go. And that's uncomfortable for a lot of people, you know, like that's the, you know, your standards get raised, your standards for yourself get raised, the standards for the restaurant get raised. And I didn't like, I don't ever think area was bad. Uh, I thought that it was still very good. Um, but it had much more of like a neighborhood vibe and, um, I think we were a little more apologetic as to now we're a little more unapologetic for who we were or who we are. And, um, that starts from the top and that trickles all the way down. And, you know, like we lost a lot of staff. Um, we, we, you know, I changed a lot of things. I changed a lot of things about the culture, uh, the kind of people that we hired. Um, and what does that mean? G give me an example of that. What does that mean? How do you change that culture? How do you ch decide that, this person versus that person? What things did you start looking for? I started looking for the quality of a human being instead of a talent. Mm. You know, I much more talented, mm -hmm. right. I'd much, ra I'd much rather work with a good human being that cares a ton 
than someone that comes in saying that they worked at this Michelin restaurant or they staged it four days at Alinea or whatever that means. Cause that essentially means absolutely nothing. You know, like that shit to me means like very little, you know, can you, uh, can you come in, be a part of the team, work as a team and then prop each other up and then also hold everyone accountable. That culture is not super common in restaurants. It's like, you know, a lot of people run hot dog stands. And I think, um, I think at the end of the day, the reason why the community has improved so much is because there is more of that culture now than there was previously. Um, and I don't think that just lives within my restaurant or our restaurant group. I think it lives now within the city in several places. And um, I think that that's great. You know, I think that that's why uh, Miami food has gone as far as it's gone over the last uh, five to eight years, I think. And I, I think it shows up, you know, you go from a restaurant that, like you said, it was a little neighborhood restaurant that was not not performing well to now you have three restaurants on that block. You have to- four, Taurus, which you're a part owner in, right? Or uh, yeah. Nave, which is right next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Chug's Diner, which is just down the street. Yeah. Uh, Scapegoat, which is a, a, a bar down on Miami Beach. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and you just took over the Mighty, which is now yes. going to be called the Gibson Room. Correct. Um, so, I mean, like, it's like you changed your life and everything seemed to flow in that direction. Like everything took off for you with from that change, you know, like a change of mindset. Well, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't take all the credit for that at all whatsoever. I mean, I've been super fortunate to be able to find really incredible, hardworking people that work alongside me to make this whole thing special. Because like, you know, growth is scary, right? It's, um, it's vulnerable. It's scary. It's a lot of what ifs and whatever it may be. But if there's long, if there's like other people that are willing to push alongside you and also push you too, um, then you can really achieve some really great things. And, you know, we're fortunate that I have people like Tom, uh, Tom Lasher Walker, which is our uh, beverage director, Brittany Rothwell, which is our COO of the company now. Um, and then individual GMs, you know, Andrew McCutcheon from Ariette. Uh, my chef at Ariette is an absolute stud, incredible human. Uh, his CDC, uh, Ashley, is also incredible. And she's going to go on to take um, the executive chef job at our downtown location that's opening at the end of the year. And, you know, it's just like it's breeding a culture, but it has to start somewhere. And like that change it is tough. You know, like people don't love it. People don't like change. They don't like hard either. So um, that's totally fine. I mean, that's why I say all the time, like maybe our company is not for everyone and that's okay. What has been like the scariest part of the growth? What, what has been the thing that you've been that you've had to like really push yourself to 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 expand the most? Um, well, I think the scariest part for me is going from being a day-to-day line cook to not, you know, um, I have a really special relationship with like cooking. I think that it, in a lot of ways it saved my life, like way before life changed from four years ago. And I owe a lot of that to Norman too. Um, but you know, going from being the day-to-day executive chef of a restaurant or two to then being the chef owner of a company is a scary change. Uh, and I think you play a lot of like the cards of like, um, 
but if it was me, how would I do it different and so on and so forth. So you become more of a coach in the process and you have to understand how to coach people. And fortunately I played sports from like a very young age. So I, I experienced a lot of different coaches, great coaches, bad coaches, terrible coaches, incredible coaches, legends. Um, and I learned a lot. I learned as much from the shitty ones as I did from the great ones. Uh, I learned what not to do and I learned what to do. And even so in that process, like you as a coach, like everyone has to be coached differently. So it takes a lot of time, you know, it, take, it has taken a lot of time away from the things that I find um, that kind of fulfill me sometimes, but at the same time, you know, uh, and Albeit, I don't really agree with David Chang probably ever, but um, one thing that he said that stuck with me for a long time was like, when you have the people, you need to provide opportunities for them to grow because they're not going to leave, which is also great if they leave and they find a better opportunity. But, you know, you would like for them to stay within the family. And, um, you know, we've had to do that. And I think that we've created a lot of great opportunities. And I think that, um, you know, I believe that all these people will go on to crush it. You know, it, it strikes me that, that the, oh, I, I was just thinking that it strikes me that it's this idea that you were doing everything yourself and you had to be comfortable. You had to be comfortable turning it over to other people. You had to go from quarterback of the team, playing every down, getting touching the ball in every play to being the coach, like stepping off and saying, like, I know that I can do this. I know that I can cook. Now I have to teach other people to do it so I can do it on a bigger scale. Well, I think it's also like the reason why I obviously love all of our locations, but area is like, it's almost like part of my fiber that place because it helped me grow as a human and also taught me a lot about myself. And I think interestingly enough, like right now uh, it's a room with so much talent and it, they, we're living in like a very interesting time period that I don't know if those kids understand how special the time is. And I've been fortunate enough to live it before. Like when I worked for Norman, I thought uh, our team there was like all studs. When I worked at Cyprus, I thought that that team was all studs. And actually everyone that was on that line at one time at Cyprus now runs their own things. Um, you know, we do a lot of like creation through collaboration and it's very special because there's people that not only, um, are creative, like hyper creative and hyper hardworking and so caring. They also like really just want the restaurant to be great. And that's so rare, you know, like there's no like people that are just there for a paycheck. And it, you're talking about from the fresh, uh, fry cook, um, which we don't really have fried cook, but Garmo cook, um, all the way up to the cook. That's, uh, the sous chef that's been there for five years, you know? So it's like, they all just like, and they hold each other accountable and they're such a, it's such a special team. And I think that that, like that culture right there, it, it really like, it's infectious. So when other people from other restaurants go in there, like they're intimidated because it's such a like intense environment, but also very caring and also very family oriented. Like they'll sit there and talk trash to each other, but also they'll hug each other and they'll take a bullet for each other, you know? And that's like, it's super rare. We've had a few women on the podcast that have told us that the just Miami kitchen culture in general isn't super hospitable for women. So do you think that this kind of shift in your kitchen is the kind of thing that would make it 
that makes for a good environment for women to feel comfortable working and like progressing in Miami's uh, food industry? I mean, you know, like the other side of it, which, um, and I don't doubt that's the case that it's not super hospitable. Uh, we have zero tolerance for shit like that. Uh, it's like, um, like I said, I have a real bad side and that's when you see like the real bad side. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that like we make it a point to empower women. We obviously give everyone equal opportunity to, to crush. Right. Um, I think that the culture is conducive to like, it doesn't matter who your boss is, the gender of your boss, the color of your boss or whatever, like you respect those people. And that goes from the dishwasher all the way up to the chef, you know? And, you know, I mean, like the, the women that we have in our kitchens are amazing. I mean, and they're super boss. Like they, uh, take zero shit. They just like, they, like they hold it down super hard. So I, you know, if, if we were to say that, um, our kitchen culture helps that, that's great. Um, I think that, you know, like we, we never see stuff like that ever. And I, I think it's cause we have like a very zero, very low tolerance for it, you know? Uh, but we have like a low tolerance for disrespect across the board, you know? And, and, um, for us, you know, we took on that TK mentality, which is like, uh, you know, we call everyone from the dishwasher to the bus boy, we call them all chef because it's a sign of respect, you know, and we try to keep that across the board. So I think implementing things like that from the very baseline of stuff um, changes kind of like the mindset, you know, and, and I hope it does, I hope they, you know, it does make a change and I hope it does feel like there's a change there. You know what I mean? So you get to the point, you know, I mean, you get to the point that your restaurants take this shift and people start to notice. You said you get a couple James Beard nominations. Padma Lakshmi, who's the post of Top Chef, and she has this really great series. That it won all kinds of awards the first year it did it, um, uh, Taste the Nation. She did like a holiday episode and she wanted to do a focus on Noche Buena in Miami. And she did a couple places that like she roasted a pig with uh, Mika Leon from um, uh, Caja Caliente and uh, I, I, she, she talked to me a little bit. We sat at La Ventanita and we had coffee and we talked about like the history of Miami and Cubans. But she went to your restaurant for something different. She was, you make a Noche Buena on a plate and yeah. you, you spin, you spun forward this idea of like using these flavors that are similar, that are, are familiar to us in a way that's very specifically fine dining. And one thing that always stood out to me was that you try to imagine what if Cuban cuisine had been allowed to evolve naturally without a Cuban revolution and it had been influenced by, you know, like you said, TK, the Thomas Kellers of the world and letting it, let it fine dining have take a hold of that. Uh, I think that yours is the closest thing that I've ever seen to like what, what that cuisine would be. Sure. Um, so tell me about that a little bit. I mean, sitting with Padma and like, she came back the next day, like after they shot, yeah. she came back and just had dinner, which is pretty yeah. cool. She was great. Her team was great. I'll be uh, totally frank about that show. First of all, I, I love that show. I don't watch a lot of food TV at all. Um, you know, there was a point that we almost didn't do the show. And uh, the only reason I bring it up is because it, it's to double down on what you're saying. So when we were in like the product plant production planning, I don't know what it's called for the show. Um, they asked me what I wanted to cook. And, um, before I could 
get it out. They said, well, you know, we would really love for you to make a Cuban sandwich. <laughs> and I, and I laughed and I was like, no, that's just not going to happen. And they're like, well, why not? I'm like, well, look, I haven't worked for 17 years and I don't think that our culture has progressed as much as it has in this room for me to give you a Cuban sandwich. And I think that that goes to show a lot of like, um, you have to really like stand by what you want to make a change for in order to have that scary moment. Like, really, I want to do the show. Like, it's cool, right? Like, I think she's amazing. Uh, and I think the premise of the show is great. But at the same time, I'm totally cool walking away from it. If you think that I'm going to dumb down like all the stuff that we've done. And I think like as much as Cuban culture has endured for us to do a Cuban sandwich, you know? So, comp- so compare, okay, Cuban sandwich. I could make one in my kitchen right now in about right. five minutes. Right sure. now, explain to me with all the French terminology what you made. And so, Amy, it's Amy. If you talk about sports, all those sports terms go right overhead. <laughs> These are going to go overhead too, and maybe some people also. But the food people in the audience, it's tell okay. Us what you, you can tell nerd us what you out. Made. I'll, and I'll and I'll, those, some of them go over my head too. I got to Google like what is a rillette, you know? <laughs> so like, uh, so what did you make? They said Cuban so, sandwich, and you made. So we wanted to do like I've had this incredible goal of like recreating the feeling, not just the flavor, but like the feeling that Nochebuena gives you like on one plate. And it's probably been like the most, like it has dodged me, like this whole, like it just eludes me, the whole thing. Like there's such a, like obviously we eat pork all the time and rice and beans and yuca and mojo and all that stuff. But the feeling of Nochebuena and eating with your family, the smell in the air, all of that, like, how do you recreate that on one dish? And I think I've tried this dish like four or five different times, right? Four or five different tasting menus, different events or whatever. And um, I think that was actually our best rendition of that dish. So we took uh, porcelain, which is a baby pig. It's all milk fed. Uh, so it's like very creamy. The meat is super creamy. The skin is not super tough. And we did porchetta out of it. We did this uh, cured and then lighted porchetta that we sous vide for 36 hours. And then uh, we took uh, pig's feet and uh, head and we cooked all that down and we made essentially like a nose to tail head cheese out of it. Uh, and then we turned that into Amy, a fifth. Amy's, Amy's making a face. Head cheese, by the way, is not cheese. It's like a sausage. Like right. closest to yes. a sausage. All right, All go. Right, Continue. So, um, <laughs> and then uh, we wrapped that in cabbage and we made a pithivier, which a pithivier is almost like the French version of a pastelito, which is why we thought it like totally made sense. And then we took um, uh, local baby onions. We charred them. We made these little like um, like petals out of them. And then we did a mojo with black tea, I think it was. And then we did uh, sour orange. We took fresh sour orange from Homestead and we turned it into a gelée. So there was like dots of that around. So then from the braise, we take the, the actual cooking of like the head and the feet. We take that jus, we reduce it down, and then we finish it with pureed calabasa and sherry vinegar. So the dish essentially has these like um, two components. I mean, it's like seven, but like two main components that should feel in essence – like a like very finesse soigne version of Noche Buena. 
Carlos, they wanted him to make a Cuban sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> like that man, that man just explained. Like, Did you make us a Cuban at, sandwich? And he was like, uh, no. <laughs> uh, no. That man just explained three different French culinary terms. And they yeah. were like, can you put some ham on this he, bread? He like turned the pig's please. feet and the head into like some kind of special juice thing. And he like poured it on some stuff. And they wanted him to make a Cuban sandwich. Right. And, and listen, I don't was, think, and I don't, I don't want to like, I'm not trash talking them at all whatsoever like no no i, no. Have, oh, I get I have, it i get I have it like the utmost respect for for her in that entire show but what i want to do is change the perception of what cubans and cuban american culture is capable of and who we are and that's totally. like i'm totally i'm exhausted exhausted by the cuban sandwich exhausted <laughs> like the whole thing we have like, more to offer than a cuban sandwich yes right we are more yeah. than that right Right. And I think like we just have to stand firm there, you know, like it's cool. Like, and I, I love a Cuban sandwich, but it's not like it doesn't, I'm not going to hang my hat on it either. You know, right. it's not like, not where we're at, not as hard as my team works, as hard as that whole restaurant, as we've all worked to like for it to get to where it is today. You know, I don't want, it. we actually had a table. We've had a couple of tables come in because of that show and if we do a cuban sandwich and they eat the food that they're eating it like none of that makes any sense so um yeah that's cool i mean you're i i I, what i love about your restaurant is that you you don't take the easy you don't make take the easy play like you at once at one point told me i will never make a flan i will never make (laughs) just a flan because it's a layup like just to make a flan which by the way making a flan is not like super easy like it just really takes time but Yes. You made a you made a flan with uh, with mushrooms. Yeah, and I will never forget that. Yeah, I mean it's still on the menu. It's the only dessert I'm responsible for because we have like an amazing pastry chef. Uh, Devin Braddock is uh, probably one of the most talented, hardworking individuals I've ever met. Yeah, the so like she, the desserts there and at Chugs, she makes these chocolate pies and these. And These, the chocolate uh, pie. Like like yeah. the, the different fruit pies that she makes are ridiculous. They're so yeah, the good. Passion fruit, the passion fruit pie is also pretty yeah. special. But yes, you know, that's the like one I was thinking of. I was forced in year two. Again, everything was going pretty poorly, so I lost staff. I lost my pastry chef uh, to another restaurant. Uh, right, and um, oh oh, salt, salty, salt. salty, salty, and um, still, and uh, yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was forced to do pastry and I'm just like, that's not really my bag. So I was like, you know, I guess I can make a flan. And then I had this, uh, a great friend, Vivian, uh, she lives on the West coast, but we went to school together and she was going to be here for a few months visiting her family. So she came and she helped me like develop these recipes. And when I had visited the West coast, like years before, like five or six years before that, um, I was introduced to candy cat mushrooms, which, you know, I mean, it's a mushroom, but they smell and taste like maple syrup and they're super rare and super hard to come by. Um, but I had a bag of them and I was like, I saw a bunch of recipes for like candy cat mushroom, uh, ice cream. And I was like, well, this could work, you know? And I don't know why it gave me vibe of like, after, after, you know, after dinner, like watching my grandfather, like. I still don't understand why they do it. Drink Sambuca and put the coffee beans in there and light it on fire and do the whole thing. And I was like, I don't know, this gives me like all that coffee Sambuca vibe and it all worked together, you know? And it was just kind of like one of those strikes of like, 
you know, a lot of times I, I really, I like to think outside the box and that doesn't always work and that's totally okay. Um, but that's one of the times that I, it, it actually like really worked. And um, I know Carlos wrote about this, but like at what part of the process of making the flan does the mushroom, the cap, the mushroom come in? We, we steep it at like when you're making the cream base, you steep it, you pulse it, you put it in there and you strain it out. So it's not like there's no actual chunks of mushroom in it, right? So it just has this like really interesting earthy maple syrup flavor to it. Because I thought we're already going to weird people out that there's like mushrooms in a flan, right? So if like we have like chunks of mushroom, forget it. Like they're never going to get it. So, you know, we just steep it into the cream. But I mean, it's like it's delicious. You like basically make a tea out of it, like the same yeah. way that you, you infuse the flavor into it. Mm-hmm. Mike, so what's next, dude? What's uh, you, we had like the Michelin supposedly Michelin stars are, are going to be awarded down here. Do you care about that? I yeah. know the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, like when you're, um, <clears throat> so I remember when I worked for Michael. Um, I have like a great relationship and a huge respect for Michael Schwartz. And when I worked for him, we had a great relationship, and. You know, he would always walk in the restaurant and give me a hug and we would talk and we would shoot shit. And, um, you know, he would always ask me, like, you know, what are you up to? I'm just like, you know, I'm just trying to be like you when I grow up. And he'd be like, you know, be careful what you wish for. And he's like, I was like, you know what? I'm just trying to do more than you did. And that's a tall order because Michael Schwartz has, like, done a lot of amazing things for the city. So, and as a young cook, I would think that, like, obviously always being very hungry and, the competitor that I am, like, you know, I wanted, uh, there's three things I always wanted, which was to, to win a James Beard award, win a Michelin star and to do a duck press. So, you know, we do the duck press. Um, the other two haven't quite hit yet. So, you know, we have hopes and, uh, we're really excited that the guide is here. Um, I think that, uh, it's well-deserved for them to be here. I think the city deserves it. I think the community deserves it. Uh, I think, um, there's a lot of local restaurants that really deserve it and deserve the recognition and deserve the love. And, um, yeah, I really hope that, you know, it's a, a, a big day for the city overall. Mike, uh, what's, um, what's making you mad nowadays? There's always something that's making you mad. No, I mean, you know, uh, I, I heard, I, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't even listen to my own, so don't take it personal, but, um, I heard that you said earlier uh, in a, a previous episode, uh, maybe one day I'll play nice. I think that's what you said along those nights. I think nowadays I'm playing more nice than I used to do. There's things that really, they grind me. But at the same time, um, I think I've said enough about the shit that grinds everybody that I don't need to repeat it. So that's cool. Um, you know, like... They're well documented, so I don't need to go back into them. But um, yeah, you're, yeah, you're. Everybody should just listen to Pancom Podcast, which, by the way, is a great name for a Miami food podcast. Pancom I'll podcast. give it finally to almost to Nick, as good as La Ventanita, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll I give mean, it to Nick. That, Nick. Nick thought of that name, and uh, I kept taking credit for it. But after we look back into the history books, he did think of the name, so I'll give him credit yeah. for it. Nick Jimenez, um, who's your uh, who's your co co host and kind of uh, your provocateur. <laughs> He, he, he jabs uh, at you. He pokes at you. He pokes the monkey and one that tries to get you uh, to jump. We have been told previously uh, by people that Nick is my creative life partner. So uh, <laughs> apparently, apparently, that's the thing. Um, you know, like he's your, he's your work wife. I, yeah, I guess. Um, 
I don't know. I, I it's been a real tough two years, you know, Yelling. and yeah. there's only so much energy I have to really tell people um, like all the dumb shit that they know that bothers people. And I think now it's time to go for bigger goals, you know, and I think that our voice uh, people do listen to. So, you know, like small dumb shit doesn't bother me anymore because uh, it happens every day. Um, people will talk trash. Uh, people will do dumb things. But at the end of the day, like what matters the most is the company that I have, the, the people that work within it, um, and making sure that they are happy doing what they're doing, that they love their job, and that they're executing at a high level. And that's really all I care about. You know, like there's bigger goals for me. And I think, you know, luckily our podcast has given us an opportunity to talk about them, like coming up soon, uh, which I think is an episode that everyone should listen to when it comes out. Lee Schrager will be uh, visiting us on the podcast, which I have been very, very, very vocal about how much I do not like South Beach Food and Wine Festival. And, um, uh, And I have also been vocal that I don't have a problem with Lee personally, but he takes it pretty personal. So yeah, that's um, his baby. So he is going to take that personally for sure. And that's cool. And I think, I think instead of people sitting in back rooms and back alleys talking about how much they don't like the festival, I think we should really just talk about it. You know, and I think that's what is idea. it? That, what is it that you don't like about it? What's yeah? Cause I, I know, I know what the things that irk me about it. What are the things mm-hmm. that, that make you crazy? And, and you have not participated. Like there were times where they almost had you and they even started publicizing. And then you're like, ah, we backed out. We didn't do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, it's the same way I, I I almost said no to doing the show with Padma is like there's a lot of power and strength in saying no. Right. You know, I don't have to do problem. everything. I don't I don't need to do. Uh, I feel very like fortunate and blessed that uh, we have a great reputation. And I think we've worked very hard for that. Uh, so their PR and marketing that they provide for restaurants, I don't really see it as enough uh, to say that I'm going to give up endless amount of hours of my staff's time, my time, product, and then also equally to put it out in an area that we're not going to really put our best foot forward. And then equally on a stage that I don't think um, showcases the the city. You don't see the return on investment? There's no return on investment, but I also don't see the city that gave you the platform to be where you're at. I don't see you showing them the love that they very much deserve. And you know, I'm, I'm a local guy. Like I'm born and bred here. I will, I will fucking, I will go all the way deep here. This is my city. And if I feel like we're being disrespected, I'm going to say that. And there's a lot of chefs that really, they enjoy the festival and they do their thing. And that's cool. And I like, I'll, you know, you do you, that is totally your thing. But for me, um, I think that I can have a problem with it, but what's like, what's the worth of sitting there and talking trash about it if you don't try to fix the problem? And listen, I don't think the problem is super fixable, but uh, I wouldn't really be myself if I at least didn't voice my opinion. So we'll see. Mike, are you gonna are you gonna go to Hasalan in uh, in South Beach and try the Cuban black beans that so many? Oh, that's the were? guy. Oh, that yeah. was the guy, right? That was the guy. That, that was that the is, guy. Uh, we were fortunate uh, in the world uh, that there's. We're blessed. Oh man. We're- Yes. Wow. That you haven't died yet without having those beans. I feel like I need to get there before you I die. You still have time. You still have time. What a what a tool. Jeez. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't like. I didn't even like. I remember somebody sent me a screenshot, and I was like, "What is? 
what like do what's people, happening here i don't understand like do people not think before they say things or just like understand where you are or like it, does, it doesn't make any sense and you know oftentimes it's always the people that come from other places right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know i'm not gonna say it's all of them you know i think there's some people that are out of towners that do show out of love, like the Simon Kim of the world. I think that Simon does a great job of showing love to the city. What, um, what restaurants does he does he coat. stand? Coat. Oh, coat. Yeah, um, but like, I don't know. It's just like read read the room, man. Like it's probably <laughs> a bad thing to say. I don't know, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah. I forgot about that guy totally. Like that's how insignificant he is to me. Like he right. just doesn't even matter. Right? Yeah. That guy, and then you had the guy that opened that wants to open that. Cuban restaurant inspired by Che. And it's like- well, we had, you know, interestingly <laughs> enough, if you want to go back to the podcast, uh, ours. So we did uh, a podcast with Martha Bueno, uh, libertarian, I don't know, uh, politician type, uh, very Cuba oriented. Uh, it was a good podcast. But then afterwards, we got into the conversation of that. And I think there's a couple of things that I think Nick and I actually agreed on, which is rare, uh, that. He, I think like, how do we enact change for that? Right. Like that guy, those people, did they open already? They opened, right? I don't, I don't know. I honestly I don't, don't know. So. I don't think they've right. opened yet. Mm-mm. They're, they're going to get PR representation, which is very funny to me. Good luck. Um, they're, they're going to open and brickle. It's going to be a thing for a couple of weeks and then people are going to forget. Right. Those guys have a couple of locations, right? Mm-hmm. They, um, they're going to continue to open locations. That's what like a place like that does. Mm-hmm. So instead of like doing the pot and pan thing, which, you know, I have nothing against or continuing to berate these people, which I also have nothing against. How about you like, and I would tell whoever that, I forgot who that guy is. I remember his Instagram said, uh, said that he's like a professional reggaeton fan. I don't know. And, <laughs> um, and uh, instead of like berating him, which I would also like to do, but I'm not going to do. How about we sit down and we have a conversation of why what you're saying is completely and utterly ridiculous and what you're doing is completely and utterly ridiculous because you like, again, you didn't put any thought into this. Some marketing company put a bunch of shit in front of you and you're like, well, this looks cool. But does it? Well, probably a bad idea. You know, we're never going to make a change if we just crush these people. Right. Because like the whole uh, and. You can look at it both sides, right? Like we could say that we're going to stand there and we're going to protest every day, but people still got to go to work, man. They're not going to protest every single day. You know, it's not going to be realistic. So Sean, I think his name is Sean. I don't know. Nick would remember. Sean Meehan. Yeah. There you go. That guy. Hey, sir. Yep. Um, I would much rather sit at a table with that guy and be like, let me explain to you why what you're doing is completely and utterly ridiculous. And you may not know. And the thing is, if you know, then you incriminate yourself that you're an asshole. Sorry. I don't know if I can say that on here. I don't know this kids show or whatever. It's fine. But, but like at at the end of the day, at the end of the day, like um, the conversation has to be had because right now he's just been completely silent, which is also smart too. Cause like if he stays completely silent, then people are going to forget. I have not forgotten. You guys haven't forgotten. People are not going to forget like something like this. Maybe the fact that he's opening up in Brickle and it's like very multicultural there. And like, there's more than just Cubans there, you know, maybe, um, but there's going to be a lot of people that don't forget. So, and we have obviously emailed them, try try to contact them in any which way. But I would love to have a conversation Same. with them because I want to know what like what was the thought process here? Do you support these things, or 
Would someone just slap like a bunch of pictures in front of you and say, wow, that looks really cool. Like and you didn't do board, any. They were like, right. Yeah. Super dope. Yeah. Like, but it's also like no one uh, raises a bunch of cane about like uh, there's um, there's a Cuban restaurant in D.C., right, that I uh, may have had too many drinks and walked into and said some things to people that work, the manager that worked there. But um, that has a big mural of like communists, like openly communists. And then also their Cuban restaurant menu, the first thing on the menu is guacamole and chips. And it's like, we're all confused. Like a lot of things aren't matching up. And it's like, no one raises cane there because nobody cares there, right? Mm -hmm. Here, it's obviously the wrong demographic to not care about stuff like that. But all I want to do, I want the opportunity, and it could be a 15-minute conversation, and you could be like, I totally support this trash on my walls, and then now I know you're complete trash. But if you didn't know any better, and maybe maybe it's smart for you to play like you didn't know any better, but if you didn't know any better and you're going to be like, we're going we're gonna to try, we're, we're going to do our best to change this, we're going to change it completely, then you know what? We, us here, have had an impact for the rest of the country. Because they got one of those in Hawaii. They got them mm-hmm. like, you know, they got them in other places. So if we can make a change in the whole country, that to me has more impact than sitting in front of his place, wasting my day in the heat, telling him that they're trash. Because obviously now they already know, right? Well, if you really think about it, though, um, Carlos covered a few times that Salt Bay's restaurant veered into the area of like uh, supporting communism in in very bizarre and stupid ways. And that place is still open, you know, like yeah. nobody, nobody burned it down. So yeah. it's either Miami has a short memory. It's yeah. Either Miami has a short memory or they just really want some gold wrapped steaks that bad. Or they really like bad steaks. I don't know. Yeah. They like overpriced trashy steaks. I mean, there's a thousand dollar steak in Miami that doesn't make not even a little bit of sense. Like not. Yeah. I think you can not, buy a cow for that. Can't you? Like probably you can literally buy But I mean, you can, you could buy a lot of meat with a thousand bucks. And it doesn't come in a briefcase with a bunch of weird dudes dancing around it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that no is idea. a little weird. A little bit weird. It is weird. It is weird, for sure. Well, well Mike, I think we've come to the point where we're going to ask you to play our game. Oh, there's or a game? Kiss, kiss, yeah, there's a game. There's Kiss, Mary Kill. We usually okay. do, we, we'll do Kiss, Mary Kill with a kind of food. I okay. mean, I almost, I almost want to make you do Kiss, Mary Kill with your entourage, Jose Mendin. Matt never. Kusher and, and Zach the Baker. Oh my God, I can do never. that, Carlos. I can, <laughs> I can never do that. I can never, I can never do that. I love all I, of them You'll equally. get him in so much trouble. Dude, no, that's, no. His, that's, his, that's, that's an entourage crew. Who would he kill? Oh, well, it's, it, it, it's like, you know, they're all very special, interesting human beings that I've learned a lot from. Because, you know, you have like Big Brother Jose, which is like, he's like Big Brother Bear. That's what I call him. And then you have Zach, which is like, you know, the incredible, incredibly talented baker that's always a little ornery, but also very intelligent. And we're also the same age, so we get a lot of the same things. And then you have Kush, that is the most Miami, not local Miami person I've ever met, and yep. also very successful and also very smart. So I'm not doing that with those guys, not at all whatsoever. <laughs> and that's and that's <laughs> nice why try. I'm not going to do nice it. Try, but, Carlos. but I think that you're the perfect one for the classic one, which is pastelitos. Croquetas and cafecito. I'm gonna ask you Ooh. to kiss Mary Kill. Go for it. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, oof, man. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kiss uh, pastelitos because you can both have savory and sweet, so it, it mm-hmm. quenches both appetites. Okay. I'm gonna marry uh, coffee and I'm gonna kill the croqueta. 
Wow. Mm. Yeah, no, but I like that theory. I like the that you your pastelito plays a croqueta role. I like that. Mm-hmm. Of course. But also it's like I don't know if you guys have ever made croquetas from scratch, but it sucks. So It's hard. Just, it's it hard. seems like a, a lot of work. I it made it like one that. time and they were the most delicious croquetas I've ever had. Sure. And I'll never do it again. Yeah, <laughs> I remember those pictures, and I was like, "Why did you do that, Carlos? You can just oh my God. go get them." They were <laughs> Actually, so good. One of my first uh, cooking experiences in my life, I was eight, eight or nine years old, and I was cooking croquetas uh, in a frying pan, and I blew up my kitchen. <laughs> what? what? How did you do that? Well, um, it was like <laughs> Saturday morning. Were they like morning. the exploding croquetas from Cuba? You remember that story? Oh, yeah. I do remember that. The no, exploding that's, croquetas. that's an interesting theory. Um, the the um, It was Saturday morning cartoons, so I was like ready to get back to watch the cartoons. So I made the croquetas. I put them on, you know, a little paper towel and a thing and a little ketchup, and I was ready. I was on my way. And um, so I'm watching cartoons in my – my room, the door, you can see like a piece of the kitchen from my room. And I look over there and it's like, there's like a little smoke. And I'm like, man, that's weird. So I walk out there and uh, I forgot to turn the frying pan off. And I was like, I said like nine, maybe 10. I don't remember exactly, but my mom would remember. Um, and uh, I, as I turned it off, as soon as I turned it off, a little fire started. Oh. And I thought it was a great idea to throw water on it. Oh. So it was like a little, little nuclear cloud. Oh my god! Of fire and smoke, and then so it stopped the fire, but then the whole kitchen was black. Oh, so, wow! That's yeah, not terrifying. I mean, nothing you've done in a professional kitchen got you in more trouble than that. I'm. I'm no, I don't know that. if that's true, but um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's quite true, but. Um, yeah, my, that was an interesting way to wake up my mom that day. <laughs> well, Mike Beltran, thank you for making the time. Michael Beltran. Yeah, Michael. Rep- right? I, you know, my, my mom Miami. would say it's Michael, right? My mom would say it's Michael. So um, thank you guys so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, Rapper of Miami. Thank you. Killer of croquetas. Burner <laughs> of kitchens. Now. Go hit the showers. Yeah. All right, yeah, guys. You smell. Get out of here. <laughs> Thanks. Peace. I didn't know that croquetas could be so deadly. I didn't know that you could die making croquetas. But <laughs> Mike, Mike almost proved it. Uh, well, Amy. All right, well, I'm just going to go bang my pot some more to celebrate my friend Carlos. All right, so wait, tell me when, uh, when do we find out about these James Beard Awards? Okay, so uh, June 11th in Chicago. Uh, I'm actually going to make that trip because I like Chicago. My nephew just moved there, uh, and I'm going to make it a little vacation. Uh, honestly, it doesn't even matter if I win. I'm really glad just to be going, and um, and I'm going to have a good time. Uh, so June 11th will be the day, and uh, we'll know. All right. That's we'll know. Okay, well, I guess that's a show, Carlos. That is a show, Amy. We'll go back to our COVID bubbles. Yes, I, we're just going to go back to bed now. And all three of the people who are viewing, you should all get tested. Yeah, everybody. (laughs) Peace out. Bye.